It was in a recent study of more than 40,000 individuals between the ages of 8 and 80 that two doctors, Dr. Arnold Cole and Dr. Pamela Claude Hill Ovega, they made a remarkable discovery. They discovered a single behavior that when repeated results in the following changes in an individual's life. A 30% decrease in feelings of loneliness, a 32% decrease in anger, a 40% reduction in bitterness in a person's primary relationships, and a 57% decrease in alcoholism and alcohol dependency. Now, what was so amazing about this discovery, this research, was not only these results right here, but how significant the issue of repetition was in their work. Because what they discovered is that um, if, these, if this one behavior, this one behavior was practiced one, two, or three times a week, um, then actually none of these results showed up. It was only when this one single behavior was repeated four or more times a week. In other words, once it actually became a habit, that all of these results became present in the individual's life. And not only that, what they discovered, that doing this behavior one, two, or three times a week had almost zero impact, which was not what they expected. They expected that as the behavior was repeated, that slowly and steadily these results would begin to be seen. That's not what they discovered. What they discovered was that one, two, or three times of repeating this behavior every week, it was statistically the same as zero. It was statistically the same as not doing it at all. Right, so what is this remarkable behavior that when repeated four or more times a week results in all of these benefits? Reading or listening to the Bible. Now, throughout the season of Lent, which if you're new to church or if you're new to Jesus or if you're new to following Jesus, Lent is simply the term that we use to talk about the 40 days leading up to our celebration of the death and the resurrection of Jesus on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday. And so throughout the season of Lent, we are looking at a series of very specific habits that literally has the power to change your life. And when we say change your life, we don't mean like marginally better. We mean like remarkably better. And I think that you would have to agree that anything, any behavior that you can do, if there's something that you could do in a couple of minutes a day that was free, right, and it resulted in all of those changes that we just heard about, that would truly be remarkable, wouldn't it? And so what's the issue? Right? I mean, what's the challenge? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I read stuff every day, right? You read stuff every day. Why in the world do we struggle so much with this? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, uh, we read this. Now, the snake was more crafty. And, and listen, if you don't know anything about the story at this point, then it's kind of like, okay, why in the world is a snake here? And how did the snake get here? And, and who is the snake? Right? We, we don't know any of that. We simply hear that the snake was more crafty. And the word crafty, that's translated as crafty in the Hebrew, it can mean intelligent or, or devious. The snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The snake then said to the woman, did God really say, referring to something God said earlier, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to, to the snake, well, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, in the trees in the garden, but yes, God did say you must not eat from the fruit that's in the tree of the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing 
good and, and evil. God's lying to you. God's trying to keep something from you. God has an agenda that he hasn't told you about. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, right? All of these things, good, pleasing, and desirable. She took some and she ate it. She gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Now notice, what does the snake go after in this story? Right? He goes after trust. First, Adam and Eve's trust in God, right? Trust that he is in fact loving, right? Trust that he does in fact want something good for each of us. The implication that's being made is that God has an agenda. God's not being honest with you. He, he's not telling you everything. He's trying to keep something good from you, right? But then second, and this is actually very easy to miss, in God's definition of good and evil, you certainly will not die, the snake to the woman. God knows, right? And you should know. You will know. You will know good from evil. You will actually become like God. The temptation for Eve and then for Adam is to redefine good and evil based on the voices in their head and the desire of their heart rather than to trust in God and his love and his wisdom and his design as it comes to them through his word. And at its core, right, at its core, all temptation is the temptation to redefine good and evil for ourselves apart from God. Based on the voices in our head, either from our own thoughts or perhaps from our AirPods or the desires or the inclinations of our hearts. Rather than to trust in our Heavenly Father's loving design, his wisdom, and his intelligence as it comes to us through his word in order to lead us and to give us a good and happy life. Now, if you're familiar with church or if you've grown up in or around church, then you know um, that this event is actually where we get the term or, or the phrase original sin, um, which is really key because the origin of sin is the origin of sin is trust. The essence of sin is trust. Sin is all about who you trust. Nobody sins out of obligation, right? Monday morning, 9 a.m., I, I think I need to go blow up my family. I really don't want to, but, you know, I just need to get this done. Right? No, we, we sin because we believe a lie, right? We sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy and what we think is good. And we trust the voice in our head and the desire and the inclination of our hearts more than we trust the word of God. Eve, and then later her husband Adam, chose to trust in the snake rather than trusting in God. And the result is basically Genesis chapter 3 over and over and over again until we get to Jesus. Because where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus did not. Where Israel failed, Jesus did not. Where all the people of the Old Testament, all of humanity, where they all failed, Jesus did not. Where you failed, where I failed, Jesus did not. And in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew tells us that Jesus 
was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And so the tempter came to him and said, and doesn't this sound like Genesis chapter 3? If you are the Son of God, did God really say, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread? Jesus answered, it is written. And so he quotes from Deuteronomy. He says, is it written that man does not live on bread alone, but on every, what, every word, every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil then took Jesus to the holy city, to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, then throw yourself down, for it is also written. And then the devil actually quotes from Psalm 91, which is fascinating, right? How well-versed the devil actually is in Scripture as well as his ability to manipulate it. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone, which is a statement, is a statement com- taken completely out of context. And so Jesus once again responds with, Scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 6, it is also written, Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give to you, he said. Just, Just one compromise. Just do this one thing and I'll give you exactly what you want. Just bow down and worship me. Jesus once again quotes from Deuteronomy, and he says to Satan, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then Matthew tells us that the devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. Now on the surface, as we listen to these these two stories, particularly this event from Matthew, on the surface it appears that Jesus and the devil are in a debate about Scripture and how to interpret it. But in reality, don't miss this, they're actually in a conversation about whether or not to trust Scripture as an act of trust in God or not. And notice that in Jesus' moment of temptation, right, his chance to undo Adam and Eve's failure and Israel's failure and your failure and my failure, in Jesus' moment of temptation, Jesus doesn't simply say no to temptation. Right? Turn these stones into bread. No. Neither does Jesus quote scripture um, as if it's some kind of a magical incantation. Right? No, instead, Jesus actually trusts in scripture as an act of trust in God. This is Jesus' posture in regards to scripture. This is how Jesus reads the scripture. And Jesus' way of reading the scripture calls into question other ways of reading the scripture, both in his day and in our own. In fact, we can see this very clearly in the way that Jesus interacts with two different groups of people from his day. Groups that we would tend to think of almost like political parties, but in reality, um, they, they were more like social classes. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees were a small group of of, uh, upper-class, well-educated social elites who lived mostly in the urban center of Jerusalem. And these were the people who, in conjunction with Rome, um, they set the trajectory for the policies and the laws and the people that would govern the nation of Israel. They did not believe in a resurrection. 
They only accepted five books of the Old Testament as being scripture, the books of Moses. They rejected anything supernatural. They didn't believe in angels or demons. They were very deterministic. They even rejected praying or asking God to change something in your life because from their perspective, um, everything that we experienced, God had already predetermined. So there was no point in asking God to change or do anything for you. And so in Mark chapter 12, we find an amazing interaction, a conversation between Jesus and a group of Sadducees discussing the nature of Scripture. In verse 18, um, Mark records this for us. He says, Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, they came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and rise up offspring for his brother. Now, this sounds really crazy to us, right? But this was, in fact, an amazingly compassionate law that God gave to his people to care for a woman whose husband died in an age where there was no such thing as a social safety net. And so here's their story. Verse 20. Now, there were seven brothers, right? This is the most hypothetical of all hypotheticals you'll ever hear. There were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow but also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third and the fourth. In fact, all seven died without leaving any children. Last of all, the woman died too. So Jesus, teacher, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now again, this seems funny and ridiculous and amusing to all of us. right? But in addition to that, I want you to notice the contempt. Notice the disdain. Notice the, the posture of the Sadducees, not simply towards Jesus, but also towards the scriptures themselves. This is not simply an attack on, a, on the doctrine of the resurrection, no. This is an attack on the scriptures themselves. Listen to how Jesus responds. Jesus responds by saying, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, the angels that you don't actually believe in. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, the books that you say you actually agree in, in the account of the burning bush, how God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly, badly mistaken. Now, this is Jesus' loving and honest word to the Sadducees, who have a lot in common with the people in our world who reject out of hand the scriptures because they speak of things like angels and demons and miracles and prayers and ideas that seem old-fashioned to us. Jesus says, you do not know the scriptures, what they actually say, how uh, to actually read them how they work together, how they all fit together. And as a result, you are missing out on the power of God, the activity of God in and through your life. And then there's the other group that Jesus speaks to, the Pharisees, which were a little bit more 
familiar with. Now, the Pharisees, um, they were more rural. They were more suburban, right? They were all about the scripture. In fact, um, most of them had memorized the entire scripture, the entire Old Testament. By the time they were in fifth grade, they literally spent hours studying it every single Sabbath in the synagogue. But over time, they added all sorts of what Jesus would come to call human tradition, which incidentally is still all throughout Judaism today. And in John chapter 5, Jesus speaks to this group, to the Pharisees, about the scriptures. And he says this. He says, you study the scriptures diligently. Right? They think they're about to get a, a high five from Jesus. But notice that according to Jesus, their posture is off. Because you think that in them, in the scriptures, you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Right? Some of you actually grew up in an environment like this. Where the only thing that mattered is what you had memorized. Right? Now listen to what Jesus says next. He says this. This is what he says to the Pharisees. I know you. I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. You love the Bible. But you are not, Jesus says, speaking to the Pharisees, you are not actually loving people. But do not think, do not think I will be the one to accuse you before the Father. No, your accuser is Moses, the scriptures themselves, on whom your hopes are set. If you had believed Moses, again the scriptures, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And see, once again, this is Jesus' loving and honest word, this time to the Pharisees who have a lot in common with those in our world who study the scriptures diligently, which is great, right? But for all the wrong reasons, they've lost sight of the fact that the scripture is a means to an end. And the end is loving people the way that Jesus has loved us and then to join Jesus in welcoming people into his kingdom. Now, we could actually stop right here and be done for today, right? We could say there are two basic ways to read the scriptures, both in Jesus' day and in our day. Jesus took issue with both, right? Those who dismissed it and those who worshipped it. Um, so we're not going to do either of those things, right? Great. End of sermon. Um, everybody goes home. Except, like, we're only 15 minutes in and you know I've barely even said hello yet. Right? But the problem is, if we stop here then all this does is it simply leaves us at the level of technique. It just leaves us at the level of thinking about the scripture in terms of knowledge, right? And knowledge is great. Knowledge is great, especially knowledge of the scriptures. I'm all for that. I'm all for the fact that as people who carry the name of Jesus, we of all people should be a people who are knowledgeable regarding the reality of life, the nature of life in this world, the nature of who our Heavenly Father, who our Savior is. But knowledge all by itself is dangerous. The Apostle Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 8. He tells us that knowledge, it puffs up. The person who thinks they know something does yet not yet know as they ought to know. See, the Apostle Paul knew that knowledge on its own can leave all of us. It can leave all of us feeling very puffed up. It can make you feel very proud and very arrogant. And again, I'm not speaking against knowledge. 
But knowledge is only a beginning. And the truth is, we will end up, all of us, we run the risk of ending up being very puffed up, being very arrogant over time, unless the knowledge that we have begins to transition into wisdom. And wisdom is very different than knowledge. Wisdom, knowledge is about facts and figures. Wisdom is about practice. Knowledge is about listening and learning. Wisdom is about doing. Knowledge is gained very, very quickly. Wisdom, however, is gained slowly. Wisdom is about the inner dynamic and the posture of our heart, the posture that we have towards the scriptures and the posture we have towards Jesus himself, what it means to truly follow Jesus, living as Jesus lived, and then doing what Jesus did. This is what it means whenever we talk about the idea of following Jesus, living as Jesus lived, and then doing what Jesus did, which after all is what the scriptures are actually for. And again, wisdom, right, wisdom always begins with knowledge. Because in every area, any area or discipline of life, you cannot make right and wise decisions until you know the rules or the parameters of that area that you're working in. If you have nothing but your own uneducated mind to draw from, then it's going to be impossible for you to make the wisest choice in any area of life. You know this. In fact, every year at this time of year, a whole bunch of us prove this to be true because we take our W-2s, our 1099s, all of our pay stubs, all of our receipts, and we say to our accountant, Bob, Bob, I need you to fix this. And the reason we do that is because we recognize that our accountant knows the rules, they know the laws, they know the parameters for the field of accounting, and they have a certain level of knowledge that we don't. And because there are, in fact, a lot of decisions to be made when it comes to filing our taxes, we know that with the knowledge that they have, our accountant will make those decisions better than we will. Same idea applies to law. Same idea applies to medicine. It applies to music, it applies to construction, it applies to every area and field and discipline of our world. Simply knowing the boundaries that exist in all these various disciplines, however, that does not make decisions for you, does it? All it does is it narrows down the list of options that are available because right away you know what can and cannot be done in any specific situation. Now, at this point, all of this is basically just common sense. So let's take it one step further. It's not just enough for us to know the rules and the laws and the limitations, the parameters for whatever field or area of life that we're working in. We actually have to submit ourselves to them. When a doctor treats a patient, not only do they know how medicine works, not only do they know how the body works, but they take that information and they submit themselves to that knowledge. And that submission to knowledge is, in fact, what allows them to help their patient. Right? Again, the same thing, the same dynamic, same principle exists in every field and discipline throughout our world because wisdom is not simply a matter of what we know. It's not simply a matter of acquiring facts and knowledge and information and rules. Wisdom is actually submitting ourselves to that information and then living under that authority. Wisdom is learning how to trust an authority with ourself. And so consequently, right, consequently, is it any surprise that such a large amount of the scripture 
is what is known as wisdom literature. Right, so this is why, for me personally, this is why I pray the way King David prays in Psalm 139, one of David's most famous psalms, when he says to David, search me, God, know my heart, God, test me, know my anxious thoughts. Right, this is the way King David prayed. The reason I pray this way is because I, like King David, realize that I can be very quick to rely on both my understanding of my life and my understanding of my Heavenly Father. And what I need is to have the Holy Spirit actually search me and show me any lies that I might be believing about myself and about my Heavenly Father. And then to be wise... That means that I actually have to submit myself and my life to whatever the scripture I am reading says. My life, my thoughts, my behaviors, my emotions, my attitudes, my relationships. So in the morning when I pray, this is what I pray. I ask God to show me and to search me, know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. This is how King David ends one of his most famous psalms, right? The very psalm, don't miss this, that he began by saying, okay, God, you have searched me. God, you do know me. God, you intimately know all the details of my life. You know when I rise up. You know when I lay down. You know my thoughts before they're fully formed. You, you know me, God. All of us, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, right? So clearly, God knows David, but if we want to learn the, to read the scripture the way Jesus read the scripture, as an act of trust in God, wisdom says, I have to invite the investigation. David says, I want you to know me. God, I want you to search me. Not because God needs to know David, but because David needs to know what God wants to show him about himself. This is huge. Right, because if I'm honest, I don't really want to invite the investigation. I just want to know all the information. But this is not a shallow invitation. This is David saying to the God of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God, I want you to show me who I am. And see, listen, the good news is this. Whatever it is that your heavenly Father um, reveals to you about yourself, that is not going to surprise your heavenly Father. It might be a surprise to you. But it is not a surprise to him. Heavenly Father, I need you to pull out of me what's inside of me because I do not really know myself the way I think I do. The scriptures contain everything that you need to know about God. They do not, however, contain everything you need to know about you. And having the scripture here is not the same as having the scripture here. And so to truly read the scripture is to constantly ask the Holy Spirit to investigate not simply our actions, but our hearts. Heavenly Father, show me. Show me how to be a better steward of my money. Heavenly Father, show me how to be content with what you've provided for me. Heavenly Father, remind me that even when I am afraid that you are with me, know my anxious thoughts. And then notice what David says next. If there is any offensive way in me, right? David doesn't say, okay, God, I want you to search me selectively. 
No, he's saying, God, I want you to find anything in me that's not like you, anything hurtful, anything unkind, anything unmerciful, anything unloving, anything unjust, anything ungracious. If there is any offensive way in me, lead me or show me. Right? Notice the pattern. Search me, show me, search me, show me, search me, show me the way everlasting. David says that, Heavenly Father, when you show me who I am, that's when I can actually apply the truth that is in your word in a way that is everlasting. Right? In other words, in order for truth to be translated as wisdom, it has to be applied. And truth can only be applied when I am aware of it. When my anxious thoughts start to rise up inside of me and my anxiety starts to impact the way that I'm treating the people around me, I'm not going to be able to go to the scriptures and open the scriptures and find God saying, okay, Joe, here's what is going to happen. This is the consequence of your unchecked anxiety on all of your relationships. This is what it's going to do to your wife. This is what it's going to do to your sons. This is how it's going to impact you as a boss. This is how it's going to impact your friendships and your relationships at work. No, God simply says, Joe, I want you to cast all of your anxiety on me, on your heavenly father, because I care for you. But listen, when I invite the Holy Spirit to search me and to show me and then to lead me, that's when my heavenly father says, great. Great, Joe, now I have something for you. And he shows me how this truth is applied to my life because of my stuff. And that is wisdom. See, don't miss this. David says this. David says, search me, know me, and then lead me. Lead me. In other words, God is not going to force something on you. He is simply inviting you to follow him as he leads you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, you may remember back in the beginning of January, um, I invited you to join me and Autumn and a bunch of us here at Faith um, to actually spend 2022 reading through the Bible, one, a little section every single day, using the Bible recap. And so far, um, more than 200 of you have actually signed up to do this, which is absolutely amazing. It's so awesome. Um, you can still sign up to do this if you'd like to join us. It's not too late. Grab one of these cards on your way out today, scan the little QR code, and you will be set up to do everything you need to do to join us in making 2022 the year where quite possibly you actually read more of the scripture than you ever have before in your life. And, and listen, um, if you've already been doing this, right, and you kind of stopped for a little bit, right, because maybe you got lost in Leviticus, you got jumbled up by Job, uh, maybe you felt negated by numbers, that was actually a hard one, I had to work for that one. Um, listen, don't worry, right, don't worry. There's, you're going to miss some days, I've missed some days, this is actually my uh, Bible recap on my phone, it's okay. Just start back on whatever, so today is the 13th, just start on the 13th and pick up where you left off. Because listen, this is, and this is the part I don't want you to miss about this. Every day when you click on this app, you'll see this little box that says devotional here, right? And probably the temptation is to just skip this every day because it's the same thing every single day. This is what it says. It's the same words every day. And listen, you do not, do not have to pray this before you read the scriptures, these exact words every day. 
But what this is helping you to do is exactly what we're talking about today. It's exactly what King David did. It's asking God to use the Holy Spirit to apply his word to our lives. Right? Because again, um, the scriptures are simply a means to an end. And the end is knowing and following Jesus. Living as Jesus lived and doing as Jesus did. Because understand... Right? Understand that maturity as a follower of Jesus is not simply related to your spiritual knowledge. It's related to your spiritual response. Maturity as a follower of Jesus it is not about how much scripture you know. It's about how quickly you respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. How quickly you say, I'm sorry. How quickly you put an end to defensiveness. Maturity as a follower of Jesus is actually saying yes to your heavenly father, even when it does not make sense to you. And see, that is why I want you to read the scripture the way Jesus read the scripture as an act of trust in your heavenly father. You need to know what the word of God says so that when you invite the Holy Spirit to search you, he can take the truth that's already been revealed to you through the pages of his word and he can make it specific to exactly where you are today. There is not a thought that can come into your mind that the Holy Spirit does not have the power to take captive. And there is not an emotion or a feeling that you will ever have that your heavenly father cannot meet you in. So heavenly father, Search us. Heavenly Father, show us. And Heavenly Father, lead us. Lead us in paths of righteousness, not for our sake, but as a testimony to who your son Jesus is, what he's done for all of us, the gift of grace that he offers to us. And Father, whatever our point of resistance is with this, for all of us here, all of us watching today, Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would meet us in that point of resistance. That you would use your word to make us more like Jesus. That we would learn to live like him and to love like him. And that, Holy Spirit, by, by the miraculous power and way that you work in some amazing way that when the people in our world, when they see us they would catch a little glimpse of our Savior Jesus, that we would grow to be more and more like him as we follow him each day. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.